to both observers and participants in the great uh, constitutional law saga that for some time we have been engaged in a profoundly important debate about the Constitution. And it's of course that debate that we are really involved in tonight. <clears throat> for a long time we've thought that the question of central importance to the Federalist Society was limited to what we largely still will address in these two days, namely the failure of the judiciary adequately to regard both the individual economic liberties that were provided for in the Constitution and to protect the system and structure of government that uh, we believe was originally intended. That issue, however, in more recent years has been broadened considerably. And it has become, in its new form, a major and central political issue of our time. We now debate with very clear implications for both ideological positions and political positions the question of how the Constitution itself should be interpreted. This question, of course, logically is prior to the question of whether the Founding Fathers intended more protection for private property uh, or whether uh, decentralization was the theme of the day and should be continued now. Uh, <coughs> because that substantive question clearly has become simply part of the uh, political and very emotional uh, aspects surrounding constitutional law in the Supreme Court today. It was, of course, if anything is to be taken seriously, and I think it must, the central issue involved in the hearings uh, on Bob Bork's nomination. In turn, however, it raises the question of what we mean or whether we are even correct to talk about the question of the intention of the founders. Now, it has been fairly easy for us for a long time simply to assume that regardless of the exact form the uh, particular interpretation took, uh, that everyone agreed that we were at least seeking to put some meaning into the words of the document. Well, I think it's no longer clear that that's precisely what everyone agrees to. We are now, I think, demonstrating in law and in constitutional law a problem about which Milton Friedman taught us a lot a number of years ago in economics. He indicated in a very famous uh, piece that there is no way we're going to convince an ideological opponent merely by arguing our ideological positions. What he said is that we must first reach some agreement about a positive theory of economics and that only when we have a positive theory of economics can we make sense out of various ideological positions. He might have added that in the process of developing a rigorous positive theory of economics a lot of the normative issues simply drop by the board because they wouldn't stand up to that kind of scrutiny. I think we're about ready for precisely the introduction of the same sort of thing in the constitutional law field. We have, and I think we, uh, our friends here tonight, 
uh, have to some extent also been guilty of focusing too much on the ideological aspects of this debate. And that uh, for that reason, I think it's very important that in this program we will be addressing the central issue of, of methods of interpretation of the Constitution. <clears throat> it uh, is certainly fitting that the keynote speaker for tonight is the person who I think in recent years has done more to liven this topic of how to look at the Constitution, uh, what it means, how uh, it should be approached, perhaps both positively but certainly normatively. Uh, no one has really done any more than Richard Epstein, professor of law, as you all know, at the University of Chicago Law School. His recent book on takings, private property, and the power of eminent domain has done more, I believe, to raise the issue again in a serious academic and intellectual fashion of what the Constitution may have had as a central theme in connection with economic and property rights than anything probably in history because for a long part of our history we simply took it for granted and then lo and behold uh, we lost it. Uh, we, it's not lost now, it's coming back quite clearly cases in the last term of the court indicate either that uh, Richard was just coincidentally lucky, which I don't think to be the case at all, or that as in fact uh, I believe to be the case, that he is already beginning to have a substantial influence on that debate and an influence very much in the direction that uh, it should have been moved a long time ago. It's a great pleasure at this point to introduce Professor Richard Epstein, as keynote speaker. We're worried about all these technical difficulties of microphones and glasses of water. Henry Manny now has his highest and best use. <laughs> and I hope that we can say the same thing about me. Anyhow, it is a very great honor to be here and to speak about the questions of economic liberties in the Constitution. I noticed in looking over the program that the organizers of the Federalist Society are the souls of discretion and that they refuse to put down the title of the speech for fear that it might be too controversial and frighten all of you away. But the subject on which I'm going to talk about today is one for which we are now celebrating an anniversary. To wit, it's the 50th anniversary, and the subject is the question of whether or not the Supreme Court made a mistake in 1937 when it undid the old order with respect to the Commerce Clause and with respect to substantive due process, or whether <coughs> those decisions should be recognized as the proper and the right cornerstone for modern American political thought, and that we should continue on our traditional way to respect those decisions as valid when made, and to make all of our policy judgment. You can't hear? Well, then I will try to talk louder. Let's see if we can start again. Uh, the question I'm going to talk about today, if I could ever be heard, is this better now? All right, I will just scream at you then. And I trust that you will forgive me. No, usually I sing to you, Henry. But since I, I will try to put on my basso profundo and do recitative for the entire talk, and if I take a breath in the next 45 minutes, forgive me, I know not what else I can do. But with that said, the topic of discussion for tonight is, in effect, the question about the revolution of 1937, 
Was this a welcome and overdue event in American constitutional law and adjudication, or was it, as I would like to contend today, something of a giant intellectual mistake, which if we could find the way to undo it, it ought to be undone? And the question I think you have to do is to ask, what particular orientation and framework should one bring to constitutional deliberation in order to be able to answer that particular question? And as I think is customary in these discussions, the argument could essentially take place on two levels. On the one hand, you could start talking about it as a matter of pure political theory and to figure out the way in which the Constitution embodies some kind of political theory and interpret the document in light of the theory that animated it. Or in the alternative, you could spend time dealing with a more specifically textual approach to the document to figure out exactly what the words means, how they would be understood by ordinary users of the language, and see whether or not standard canons of interpretation, innocuous as they may seem, have rather profound implications for the structure of American constitutional argument. And as is typical in debates of this sort, it turns out that these two elements, although somewhat formally distinct, always tend to come back to one another. So that when you're doing political theory, you revert to the text, and then when you're doing the text, you tend to revert to political theory. Each of them hopefully reinforces one another, although from time to time, the truth to be said, they often clash, sometimes in rather difficult and uncomfortable ways. But for the purposes of exposition, at least, I think the best way to begin the discussion is to start with the political theory type and to ask what I think is the essential question, one which I think Henry hinted at when he said that constitutional adjudication on the normative side will be a lot easier to understand if we know something about the nature and behavior of man on the positive side. And I think the first question you want to ask about constitutions are what kinds of people are they designed to govern? And I think the simplest answer to that question is folks like you and me who have our good days and our bad days. And that essentially when you're thinking about the question of political governance, you're more worried about people who have bad days than you're happy about people who have good days. Or another way to state the proposition, it may be that a fine despot will do wonders for you for a while and the stock market may reach 3,000. But a bad, a bad despot will have quite the opposite effect and the bear market's going to be rather more serious in its consequences than the bull market was glorious. And that means in effect that when you talk about errors, you set your presumptions against power. And that in turn then translates itself into the following kind of general maxim, which is then you try to understand the nature and the organization of political governance, you think of government not as an unalloyed good, but rather as some kind of a necessary evil. And I think that both of those terms fit very well into the general kind of political understanding that is based upon this understanding of man and mankind. And the point could be taken by looking at the two words in sequence. The first of the two words that I mentioned to you is necessary. And I take it the reason why we need government is that unrestrained individuals, able to do whatever they want, whenever they can do it, will get themselves into some kinds of bloody conflict which will leave a lot of people dead or otherwise rather unhappy. And the point about government is to control and restrain the private use of force. But the reason why it's an evil is that you have to make sure that you have a set of institutions so that those who are entrusted with the monopoly of power over the rest of the mass of mankind will not turn against them with the same kind of fury augmented by numbers that they're trying to prevent. In other words, the problem about government is you must use force in order to prevent the use of force, and it turns out that you're never quite sure when you do that whether or not the cure is going to be worse than the disease. With that much stated, then it seems to me that you could start to look at the kinds of protections that can be developed in order to prevent against the abuse of power once you can see that some centralized degree of force is appropriate. 
And here within the constitutional framework, it seems to me that there are two strategies that could be adopted. And I think it'd be fairly said that our Constitution has managed to incorporate both of them in its grand political design. And the first of these strategies is essentially jurisdiction. And I think it's lamentable that many people have looked at jurisdictional questions as something rather technical, dry, and abstruse, not really serious, of serious concern for those who are concerned with the higher principles of natural justice or utilitarian calculations and the like. But I think, in fact, jurisdictional provisions have an enormous role to play in the way in which you operate government. The trick, quite simply, is this, is to try to find a way to have governments that are set in competition to one another so that the powers of exit from individuals within one jurisdiction in order to move to another will act as a constant restraint against the power of those in power in one particular place to do things which turn out to be ultimately inimical to the public good. And a system of states with a system of enumerated and limited federal powers is very much a part of that kind of political design. The hope is that the jurisdiction will never match up perfectly with the market. And the sense is that if you have national markets, you want in some sense to have local governments. The reason being that no local government will be able to exploit all of the gains from private trade that otherwise take place because the fear of exit is simply too great and serves as an effective constraint upon their particular behavior. Now, the difficulty with jurisdictional limitations, conceived of as a sole source of control against individual behavior, is that they simply are not sufficient to the task that is put before them. Local governments, for example, are often exceptionally able and adept at finding ways to extract profits from local activities. So, for example, today we have an unquestioned local hegemony over land use activities, and the zoning laws show rather systematically how it's possible to expropriate all sorts of capital from landowners in a system which is essentially devoid of any protection of individual rights. So the second point that one has to deal with in any kind of constitutional situation is to find a way to entrench individual rights against government, not because we think rights are natural or sacred or inviolate in some abstract sense, but rather because we know that if the rights are not made, made definite, political actors will have far greater scope, power, and persuasion over the fortunes of their citizens than are necessary for the primary function of maintaining some degree of public order. And I think it's pretty clear when you start to look at our particular constitution that this kind of grim, not wholly pessimistic view of mankind animated the drafting of the original instrument, by which I include, of course, the original constitution and also the Bill of Rights. And what I want to do is to talk about two essential portions of that scheme and figure out the ways in which they could serve the ends that I've talked about and how it was that they became eroded over time and essentially undone by the time we had the revolution of 1937. And in making this kind of general set of remarks, what I hope to do is to trace something about the history through the text, point out something of the doctrinal ambiguities that are associated with the various case law development, and then indicate why the structure crumbled and then to indicate how it is that it might be resurrected, at least intellectually. And in an odd sense, I think many of the great problems in 1937 stem to the period that existed prior to it, in the sense that the doctrine was probably too complacent, too tolerant of state power, even at the height of Lochner, even at the height of substance to due process. So by the time 1937 came along, the intellectual consistency of the basic position had been lost, so it became a lawyer's technique to distinguish amongst the various precedents and to find those which had supported the extension of state power as being the dominant ones and the others as being essentially irrelevant, wrong-headed, or worse. In order to run through this exercise, let's start with the Commerce Clause. 
and figure out the ways in which you might think about it and construe it. And here what I want to do is to spend most of my time on textual construction because it seems to me that in all of the debates about original intention and living constitution, far too little attention has been placed to the way in which specific close examination of individual provisions may tell you more about the document than some grand philosophical theory whose level of abstraction may be so high as to be essentially meaningless at all. If you look at the basic text on the Commerce Clause, it is written essentially in tripartite fashion. You are told, in effect, that Congress shall have the power to regulate commerce with the foreign nations, among the several states, and with the Indian tribes. And the question is, what do you make out of that kind of a textual analysis in trying to figure out the scope of the federal government? And I think the first principle of textual construction that one would want to apply is to figure out a meaning of the word commerce which is congruent with respect to the three independent heads of jurisdiction to which it applies. That is, you want to have commerce with foreign nations among the several states and with the Indian tribes. Each carry independent weight and each cover a territory which is not going to be covered by the other terms. If you take that point of view, then there are two alternative views of the language, that is, the term commerce, which could be introduced. And the question is, which one fits better with the sentence read as a whole? One of the terms that you could use is to treat commerce as essentially an equivalent to the word trade. And the other is to treat it as a synonym for all kinds of productive activities that could be taken upon by man. Now, if you use the second of these terms, it turns out that the commerce clause as written becomes extremely odious. It turns out that you're saying Congress shall have the power to regulate manufacture with foreign nations. It's not quite clear what that means. Manufacture among the several states. It also turns out to be exceedingly awkward. And manufacture with the Indian tribes, which again is a rather, rather grotesque formulation of a fundamental principle. If you take it the other way and run the word trade, it turns out each one of the three heads is perfectly sensible. You could regulate trade with foreign nations, trade amongst the several states, and trade with the Indian tribes. And that suggests, therefore, that when you're trying to use the word commerce, trade should be the first approximation as to what it means, not all productive activities. Now, how is it that particular term used in our history? Well, here I think it's very instructive to follow the case laws. It starts in Gibbons and Ogden and moves through the more modern cases to what Jones and Laughlin and Wickard and Filburn and see the way in which the term has slowly been transformed from that rather modest construction into essentially a gargantuan term in which the Commerce Clause renders all of the other enumerated powers contained in the Constitution essentially irrelevant. And here I think it's very important to spend some time dealing with Chief Justice Marshall because in effect it has always been said that he represented the expansive view of what the Commerce Clause was about and that all subsequent decisions until the 1937 revolution represented an unpardonable lapse from the original position of grace so that what we had was a restoration of the original vision of the great nationalists rather than a revolution in its own terms which was far beyond anything that Marshall had contemplated. And here again I think it's rather appropriate under these circumstances so as to be sufficiently modest to actually take into account the facts of the case. I know it's very unfashionable in modern constitutional law to do such things on the theory that if you understand the exemplar around which the general rule is organized, you may no longer have the degree of freedom in characterizing law that you would have if you simply suppressed that part of the inquiry and went more quickly to grander thoughts. Well, this was a case which involved a steamship monopoly in New York waters and we were dealing with local politics as its finest, as it turns out that Fulton and Livingston were able to obtain from the New York State authorities the exclusive franchise to use steamships in New York State waters. And when a rival steamship company started its trek from Elizabethtown, New Jersey, 
to New York City, they were told, in effect, they could keep the engines on until they came to the state line. And once they crossed that particular line, they had to turn them off, hoist their sails, and then make their way safely into harbor. And they came up with the very deft conclusion that if that were the rule, they would be at a rather severe competitive disadvantage with any kind of company which was entitled to use steam power for the entire course of the journey. So they did the only thing that a red-blooded American would do. They sued. And they argued that the franchise, in effect, was not appropriate by virtue of the fact that the matter was controlled by the federal government under the interstate commerce power. And Marshall had to meet a series of contentions from the decisions down below, which had taken things rather the opposite way. In effect, Chief Justice Kent of the New York State Court said that internal commerce simply meant any commerce which took place inside of New York State waters. And they had a monopoly over that. And the power of the federal government was sufficient to control jurisdictional crossings from New York into New Jersey. So they could keep some kind of a watchman standing on the state line, careful not to tiptoe inside of New Jersey, careful not to tiptoe inside of New York, to make sure that things do or do not pass between the two states if the federal government saw fit. But that was the extent of the power. And what Marshall did is he invented a larger term in order to make sure that that particular construction of the Commerce Clause was defeated. And the term that he invented was intercourse, by which he meant, in effect, the ability to control various kinds of interstate sales, bills of lading, contracts for common carriers, contracts for sale, and the like, and also navigation. The power to regulate interstate commerce, he said, comprehends navigation, and that goes not only at the jurisdictional line, but also into the interior of the state. And so the way in which you would understand his opinion, I think quite necessarily and quite sensibly, is he's saying that the transportation system of interstate commerce is in fact governed by the Commerce Clause. But some sense of the limitation of what he meant is also captured by the kinds of things that he thought were outside of commerce because they preceded it. And the particular illustrations that he gave were the quarantine laws and the inspection laws. And what he said, in effect, is both of these things precede commerce and they're not part of commerce. If you actually, therefore, look at the scope of the decision and its institutional setting, it is quite clear that he found a broader construction of the Commerce Clause than had been contended for by the states, but he was very conscious to make sure that there was a reserved area of intrastate commerce, which was essentially beyond the power of Congress to regulate. All in all, even though Marshall has a reputation for being extraordinarily devious, he has, in this particular case, demonstrated, I think, the capacity for honest and sensitive and intelligent constitutional interpretation. But I think that he did not fully understand the way that single words could be taken out of context and used against the delicate balance that he sat up in that case, at least in subsequent generations. And let me here just mention two of those terms, which were ripped out from the opinion, which have become the foundation for the modern doctrine. The first of these terms is plenary. And Marshall at some point said that Congress has a plenary power over interstate commerce. And the word plenary means full and complete, and everybody, therefore, tends to treat it, at least in modern constitutional discourse, as synonymous for comprehensive and all-embracing with respect to subject matter. And the other term that he used is effect, anything which affects commerce. And if you go back to cases like Wickard and Filburn and Jones and Laughlin, we are told that the jurisdiction over interstate commerce comprehends those things which, in fact, affect interstate commerce, even though, in some sense, they may not be part of it. And the issue that you have to ask yourself is, did he say these kinds of things, given the other definitional requirements that I talked about? And the answer is no. He didn't say either of them. He didn't mean either of them. In each case, one has to look at the sentences in context, by which I mean nothing more complicated than reading the entire sentence in full, instead of stopping at the appropriate point and putting three dots in the right place. And if you want to see 
a masterful view of that mode of editorial redaction, I suggest you go and look back at the Tribe Casebook on American Constitutional Law, where the dots come in at the strategic moments and completely pervert <laughs> the meaning of the original text. Uh, <clears throat> so it turns out the plenary, the words that are always left out are the words that are follow it. And those are words which says, with respect to the specified objects that are given to the federal government under a system of enumerated powers. And what that means, in effect, is in those things which are indeed governed by the Commerce Clause, by which I think we could mean under these circumstances, interstate commerce, Congress has got all the trumps. So that if you could define the area in which they control, it's Congress won, the state's nothing. But that's very different from saying that Congress controls the entire turf. And what's happened is the word plenary, which has, was used in the first sense, has been interpreted in subsequent cases to cover the second sense as well. The other term, it seems to me, that we have to worry about is effects. And the famous maxim that people use is they say that Marshall said that the Commerce Clause governs all matters that concern more states than one. What they do is they put the quotation mark before the word more state that concern more states than one. But the interesting thing is what's the word that precedes it? The word that Marshall used was restricted rather than, in effect, granted. And the sense is completely different if you change the sequence of the sentence around. And the reason he put language like effects back into the text is that he had to counter the argument that it was okay to regulate the transport of boats in New York State Harbor because that only affected interstate commerce, but it was essentially a local matter. He had to make it very clear that New York State was acting out of line even if it managed to balkanize the trade by controlling traffic in local waters, and that could only take place by virtue of the effects doctrine. But one does not want to take an expression which is used to round out the scope of a power otherwise clearly defined and convert it into something completely different from that which was organized under the original design, to with a system of natural powers so that the among the several states becomes so comprehensive that the rest of the Constitution, or at least the rest of Article I, Section 8, which confers upon Congress various powers, becomes unnecessary and redundant. Now, the subsequent cases that one refers to all, in effect, follow Marshall until one gets relatively close to the New Deal time. And then what happens is you can start to see wonderful kinds of transformations that take place. And let me just mention one case to you which starts to show, I think, the way in which things go wrong. There's a famous case called the Shreveport Rate Cases, which was decided around 1912, 1914 or so. And the question there was whether or not when you were doing, dealing with two railways that were in competition with one another, one in local commerce and one in interstate commerce, you could regulate the rates of the local railroad in order to make sure that the competitive balance, quote unquote, with the interstate railroad would be preserved. And Justice Hughes had a sentence which talked about how Congress's authority extending to these interstate carriers as instruments of interstate commerce necessarily embraces the right to control their operations in all matters having to do with the traffic and under which interstate commerce may be conducted to ensure that it is upon fair terms and without molestation or hindrance. The way in which this sentence has always gotten construed in subsequent hearings is to simply eliminate everything which tells you the domain of cases that are covered. So its authority extending to these interstate carriers as instruments of interstate commerce necessarily embraces the right to control their operations, that is railroads, in all matters. That's always cut out. And the rest of it, the effects doctrine, is left behind. And the way I think you have to understand Supreme Court doctrine before that time is they were trying to figure out how far the jurisdiction of the ICC went. Did it cover only interstate routes? Did it cover local routes or whatever? But the thought that any of these earlier decisions went to manufacture, agriculture, or other kinds of production is just wrong. 
So when you get to decisions like Jones and Lockwood and Wickard and Philbrick, what they did as a matter of constitutional doctrine was to take the tag ends of much more complicated propositions and treat them as though they stated the necessary and inevitable and permanent truths of constitutional law. And here I think it's proper to pause for a moment to say, given these feats of textual ledger domain, what have we gained from it? Well, one thing you ought to do is to start to look and see the kinds of statutes that have been upheld under the expansive jurist interpretation of the Commerce Clause. And typically, it's the exact kind of things that you would never want government to enact. They're all the agricultural production statutes and quotas. They're all of the massive national labor relations states, which allow you to cartelize various kinds of other markets to with labor markets. And by the time you're done, you get the sense that the scheme has been inverted, because once you allow national control to take place over a variety of national markets, the ability to obtain gains from the legislature, which are permanent and enduring, is far greater than if the only thing you could do is to go to one state, try to control their labor law, try to control their agricultural system, only to find out that production will shift elsewhere. So functionally speaking, it seems to me that if we could find a way to undo what I regard to be the clearly erroneous interpretations of the Commerce Clause, it would be a welcome and beneficial thing for all of us. Now, the second point I suppose that I should talk about a little bit is, I think, textually somewhat more controversial. There are many people who think that the term substantive due process is an oxymoron, that if you're talking about process, you can't be talking about substance, so that the entire contradiction means that the enterprise should stop before it starts. And indeed, there is a certain kind of steely consistency about that particular position, although on balance for reasons that I don't have terribly much time to go into now, I think that it's probably wrong. What I want to do, therefore, is to put that debate aside and to concentrate on the evolution of substantive due processes that took place within the Supreme Court in order to give you some sense about the way in which that doctrine, too, was subject to a series of internal confusions before 1937, which led to its ultimate demise by 1937. And here, I think, the baseline for the discussion were a series of decisions in the 1890s, which said that so long as substantive due, pro due process had its substantive dimension, liberty properly understood meant, amongst other things, liberty of contract, which I take it to be a perfectly sensible and ordinary interpretation of the term from which no justice around the turn of the century, including Mr. Justice Holmes and Lockton, was prepared to dissent from. The entire question that you had to be able to work out, however, was a second question. Given the fact that liberty was presumptively protected, what kinds of exceptions, if any, could be made to the protections in order to serve some kind of higher social good? And it's here, I think, that Henry Manny's point comes back. Unless you understand the operations of contracts and the operations of regulations upon contracts, it's very difficult to develop a coherent theory of what should be included in the police power. That is, what should be included in those areas in which the state may be able to regulate without paying compensation to its victims because it's going to preserve, in some sense, the health, morals, or good order of the society at large. And in this particular area, it seems to me that a lot of the pre-1937 cases already gave away huge portions of the ballgame. And let me just talk about one particular kind of distinction and indicate the way in which it first grew up and then the way in which it disappeared. And that's the distinction which was current at the time of Lochner between what was called labor statutes on the one hand and health statutes on the other. And it was widely agreed by every member of the Supreme Court in 1904 that health statutes were essentially within the power of commerce Congress to regulate pretty much without any limitations at all, whereas labor statutes were not. And the question that you had to then ask is to whether or not one kind of statute fell on one side of the line or whether or not it fell on the other. 
Now, one of the difficulties that you get with this particular distinction is that it doesn't comport with anything that we know about the structure and function of private contracts between individuals. The basic theory of private contracts is that folks have the subjective understanding of what they think to be their best goods, and when they trade them, each person gives up something which he values less than that which he receives in exchange. And it turns out if one of the things that you wish to give up is a little bit of health in order to get something else which you value more, there is no particular reason given the classical theory of contract why people should be prohibited from making that kind of transaction. So that what happens is when you're talking about health as a limitation on freedom of contract, the first approximation is essentially it's quite clear that you could regulate private agreements to the extent that the adverse effects on health and safety are imposed upon third persons who are not privy to the contract arrangement and who have received no compensation for the losses that they are asked to bear. But what happened typically in the Supreme Court is that that line was quickly overrun so that the only question that you could state was which particular forms of voluntary arrangements survived and which ones did not. And there was no theory which allowed you to develop the distinction between health and, la and labor within that particular context. I think today we could probably understand that there might be some kinds of differences between them, but we would go under a rather different kind of basis. We would assume that certain kinds of health and safety risks are latent, that there's a possibility of misrepresentation, it may be efficient to impose some kinds of duties of disclosure and so forth, and hence would concentrate on the informational difficulties associated with health and safety as opposed to the want of those difficulties with respect to labor in order to develop some kind of distinction. But even if we did that, I think it would be most unlikely that anybody would come up with the idea that all contracting over matters of health and safety should simply be subject to the whim of Congress. Rather, you would concentrate on restoring the informational gaps as opposed to using restrictions on health of one sort or another to advance various kinds of anti-competitive ends. It is, for example, I think pretty well established in the economics literature that if you look at a statute like OSHA, most of its dominant effects are to shift relative industry power from some firms to other firms. The effect on safety and health is almost incidental to the passage of the statute and certainly cannot be used to justify it in any systematic way. So that even if you take the more systematic point of view about the subject matter, the distinction could survive, but in a much more attenuated firm form than it existed early on. Now, this particular inability to make the right distinctions between the contracts that you could limit and the contracts that you could not limit had enormous impacts upon the way in which the law of substantive due process developed in the years before 1937. Essentially, if you go back and read the cases, there were a large number of exceptions to the general principle of freedom of contract for dangerous kinds of employments was certainly one, and that was thought in many cases to be a matter of health and safety. And then there were the workman's compensation statutes. They were perfectly constitutional, even though they ousted freedom of contract, for the same reason. When you got to the rent control statutes in 1920, people started worrying about health and safety and the police power as well, even though the connection became far more attenuated. When you got to zoning, well, health and safety were clearly dominant, and the first of the zoning cases, Euclid against Ambler, went 95% of the way to establishing the modern federal or the state power and local power over zoning in a very early time. So that by the time you get to 1937, you do not have any clear intellectual structure which can be used to defend substantive due process as a normative principle. Instead, you have a series of exceptions which look, I think, quite fairly to be every bit as compelling and imposing as the kinds of cases that fall within the general rule. So what then happens? It turns out that the key distinction that you have to deal with in the early cases is the distinction as it is developed between statutes which regulate maximum hours, which was the kind of statute which was involved in Lochner against New York, 
as against those statutes which governed the minimum wages. And the issue is whether or not you could find some kind of principled way to distinguish between the two of them. If you could not, then it would turn out that you could do exactly what Justice Hughes did when he got to West Coast Hotel and Parish, which was to argue that the entire enterprise was so rickety that the whole thing should fall of its essentially own confused weight. And here I think one could say quite fairly that Justice Sutherland, who wrote the dissent, didn't quite understand what was going on with respect to these statutes and made a defense of them which would perhaps not be the one that we would want to make today. Typically, for example, he said things like, the reason we don't like minimum wage statutes, but we do like maximum hour statutes, is that people can contract around the hour statutes, but they can't contract around the wage statutes. Well, that's just wrong. The key question that you have to ask is, how much of a deviation is there between the contractual optimum and the statute that's imposed? And if there are tiny deviations with respect to wages, well, you can contract around that. If there are massive deviations with respect to hours, you can't contract around that. And Lochner, of course, was the leading case. It was no accident that they picked the 10-hour statute in that particular case. The statute was introduced by the rival unions to the non-union bakers, and they all worked nine-hour shifts, so they weren't touched by the statute. But the regulated firms were private bakers who essentially slept on the job. They got there at 4 or 5 in the afternoon, baked their bread, went to speak to sleep and harvested it in the morning on a 14-hour day. So if you have a 10-hour statute, you cut the core out from the rival institution. So the theory that you justify restrictions on freedom of contract because you can evade them doesn't take you very far. Essentially, it's wrong technically, and it also misses the very important institutional flavor associated with these cases. And I think you could say that they made other mistakes as well. For example, Sutherland was generally of the opinion that the reason you can't have a minimum wage statute is it requires employers to pay employees more than their labor turns out to be worth. That's what he said. And so therefore, there's a kind of a forced exaction, which is above and beyond what somebody would voluntarily pay. And that means that he didn't understand the notions of consumer surplus. It may well have been under the previous arrangement that you pay people a market wage, and you would have been prepared to pay them somewhat more, but once you raise the statute, what you do is you reduce the total levels of people employed. It's not a question that the people you hire aren't worth what you're paying for. Them. So that there were other kinds of technical errors. But be that as it may, given the complete lack of understanding of what was going on, he left it open to people like Justice Hughes. And he could come out with sentences like, the community is not bound to provide what is in effect a subsidy for unconscionable employers. The community may direct its lawmaking power to correct the abuse which springs from their selfish disregard of the public interest. And we are now told, in effect, that you get subsidies when you pay market wages and that there is a divergence between private and social costs when you have a purely competitive equilibrium. And it seems to me, given the dominant intellectual tone of the time, those statements were perfectly sensible or respectable. But knowing what we know about economic markets today and the behavior of government and the ability to shift rents and to transfer property rights through legislation, one, I think, has to be very reluctant to depend upon a series of statements so utterly confused and misguided as those which dominated the opinion in West Coast Hotel and Parish. And yet I think most people who regard the decline of economic liberties as being a proper and sound thing would treat that decision as essentially the decisive precedent from which all else follows. And on this, I think there's a final irony, and perhaps on that note, I best end. And that's the question of, did they really understand anything in that case? One of the charming features about that statute is it was a statute which, in effect, provided a minimum wage for women only. 
And Justice Hughes is clearly not confirmable by the present United States Senate for the position that he holds. Because when it comes to the issue of whether or not we believe that the Equal Protection Clause applies on grounds of sex, he basically gives you a you're kidding kind of answer. Um, it essentially goes, and I'll read the sentence, the argument that the legislation in question constitutes arbitrary discrimination because it does not extend to men is unavailing. The legislation is free to recognize degrees of harm and may confine its restrictions to those cases, classes of cases, where the need is deemed to be the clearest. Essentially what you could do is you could put women out of business by a piece of protective legislation, which generally helps men. And it's that whole attitude which I think marks the rise of substantive due process and which we ought to think about more clearly. Basically, if you start with a model of government which says anyone who's in government knows what he's doing and will work for the benefit of the public at large, the appropriate thing to do is to have no discretion in markets and enormous discretion in political theory and political bodies. But if on the other hand you remember what James Madison, I guess it's an appropriate person for this gathering, <laughs> thought about politics and his comment that enlightened gentlemen may not always be at the helm, you'll take a rather different view. Instead, what you'll say is, how can we figure out ways to divide power between the various branches of government to make sure that nobody gets the fatal monopoly in order to deprive individuals of the ordinary liberties which, which we hope they will become accustomed to again someday? And therefore, judicial review has the following kind of singular virtue. It means, in effect, in order to get any kind of class legislation through, you have to run two hurdles instead of one. And it may well be that the system will misfire, as it surely did in Dred Scott and arguably in a case like Roe against Wade. But by and by, if you're going to look at the source of the errors, generally a court that intervenes too much is probably going to do far less damage when it confines its attention to striking down legislation than a court that intervenes far too little. Thank you. Mm. <laughs> oh, God. Should I take a question? I'll take it if you want. Well, you don't want to. All right. You can even announce it. <sighs> I'm going to take a drink of water. Richard has agreed to take a few questions. Uh, there can't be any, of course. He must listen as fast as he speaks <laughs> so that we can get a lot of questions in. Well, uh, if no one wants to ask him, you don't have to. I'm happy to sit down. Would someone like to? Uh, no, take us. <laughs> you and my students, I humiliate you. Instead of what I'll do, Henry, I'm going to call it quits on the theory that when you're already behind, you don't try to make up a series of losses in the last inning. Not only that, I need the extra time. I figured you would, Henry. <laughs> this is known as trespass of time, but I got out in time, remember? Thank you. I am not a tortfeasor. Can I tell one story? Yes, please. I, this is a true story, and it has to do with the question of the Hobbesian problem in a setting just like this. When I spoke before the American Association of Law Schools back in January of this year, on a subject similar to this, the organizer of the panel said, I want you to understand that I will not tolerate anybody trespassing on the time of anybody else. My daughter will sit in the front row. You have 15 minutes, and if you are not done by 15 minutes, I will carry you bodily away. So there were five of us on the panel, and we all got up there, and every one of us finished 15 minutes. Then the moderator gets up, and he stands behind the panel. His daughter puts down her cards, and he sits on, and he starts to talk for 15 minutes of free-floating association. It turns out that the difficulty is quite clear. There was nobody there to regulate the sovereign, so I felt that I won by illustration the very point that I had been trying to make by way of debate. That's my one observation. <laughs>
He couldn't know how tasteless those remarks were because he didn't know that I plan to uh, intervene at this point and make a little talk. <laughs> now, there are all sorts of explanations why the moderator is not listed as a paper presenter, uh, not the least of which is that it would have diluted the significance of the program. Nonetheless, it was agreed conspiratorially among the planners that I should say a few words, and I have uh, stretched a point a bit to try and make my few words actually relate to the topic uh, under discussion, and I hope to provide some degree of introduction to what will follow. As I indicated in the opening remarks, and as everyone in this room is certainly aware, we have had a debate variously called uh, a question between the interpretivists and non-interpretivists, between the original intentionists and the living constitutionalists, what have you. <clears throat> this is the effort that is going on at the moment to try to develop some kind of a proposition of how we should approach these constitutional issues. A methodology is assumed in every substantive presentation, including the marvelous one you've just heard. Uh, <clears throat> the problem, however, has been that the cat has been out of the bag all along. It has been known that the particular methodological program defended by any given spokesperson is clearly geared to the ideological conclusions that that speaker wants to reach. It's very difficult to separate the two to be sure, and indeed I think there is good reason for suggesting that neither has a very strong case. Now, strongly supporting the original intent approach is the common sense observation that our constitutional law seems to have no logical basis apart from what was expressed in the document by the founders. That, of course, was implicit in Richard's talk. First of all, the Constitution can be seen as the embodiment of a social contract, and social contracts must be observed until, in the course of events, they are amended or overthrown by revolution. This is a deeply sensed, almost sacred aspect of our political and legal tradition, and one which arguably can be properly observed only by strict regard for the intent of the draftsman. A related point is that to the extent that the Supreme Court does not closely tie its interpretations to the intent of the founders as revealed in the document, there is no effective limitation on abuse of authority by the courts. Far from being the least dangerous branch of the government, the federal courts can be, and some would argue, as Randy Barnett did earlier, already have been converted into an uncontrolled producer of new policy initiatives without even the political constraint of periodic elections. But it would be more than passing strange if the Founding Fathers ever intended to create a Supreme Court with this kind of potential for random lawmaking. A related argument is also persuasive. <clears throat> Judicial review is nowhere mentioned in the Constitution. Its justification is strongly premised on the view that without it, the explicit limitations on congressional and presidential powers would be meaningless or useless. It would be an odd constitution, however, that implied the power of the judiciary to enforce limitations on the other branches 
and then allowed no effective limitation on the judiciary itself. If judicial review is to be assumed, then it must also be assumed that it too is limited by what the founders intended. The original intent argument is probably crucial to the very idea of judicial review. But there are significant and indeed, I think, convincing arguments against the various forms of the original intent position. The first proceeds from modern public choice scholarship. That demonstrates more clearly than was previously understood that the concept of a group intent is merely a construct and cannot, in any realistic sense, be an objective reality when there is no strict unanimity of preference among members of a group. To the extent that modern interpretivist positions assume that there does exist a single real original intent on any question, the argument lacks intellectual plausibility. <clears throat> Another fundamental kind of argument against the original intent position is that while the argument is designed to preserve a constitutional constancy through time, that is, in fact, impossible. Changes totally exogenous to the constitutional system may substantially alter the real allocation of legal power without affecting the words at all. Two illustrations may clarify this point. The Second Amendment to the Bill of Rights guarantees a citizen the right to keep and bear arms. When these words were written, the muzzle-loaded musket was clearly the weapon the founders had in mind. Today, in the common vernacular, arms includes automatic handguns and rifles, hand grenades, and perhaps even portable nuclear weapons, all, all available, by the way, to possibly intrusive governments. Quite clearly, as a result of weapons development, totally exogenous to the Constitution, not even the strictest interpretivist would argue that a citizen's right to keep and bear arms was limited to the specific kind of arms the draftsman had in mind. But as soon as an interpretivist begins to talk about the modern equivalents of 1789 arms, he is no longer an interpretivist at all. And the more he uses keep and bear arms as a metaphor for self-protection, the more like a non-interpretivist he becomes. The undeniable fact is that a change in technology has drastically lessened the ability of citizens to defend themselves against modern armed intrusions. And whether we like it or not, the real constitution, the allocation of power as opposed to merely the meaning of words in a legal document, has been altered by this change in technology. Thus, it is difficult to see how a strict original intent, as gleaned from the document, can still lay claim to preserving the very constitutional constancy it claims. There's another even more dramatic illustration of this point. As a practical matter, the enforcement reach of federal laws in 1787 was very short. Use of federal laws was severely constrained by the primitive technologies of transportation and communications. For instance, it would have been utterly inconceivable and ludicrous for Congress to adopt federal standards for meat inspection in each of the original 13 states. We can certainly conclude, therefore, that it was not a part of the intent of the founders that the federal government should have this kind of power. 
but the rapid development of communication and transportation technology through the 19th and 20th centuries has now made possible a degree of federal law enforceability that was inconceivable in 1787. And federal meat inspection laws are not only constitutionally not ludicrous, they flourish. So do we have the same constitution today that we had then? Obviously not. The controlling words about interstate commerce are the same, but manifestly the reality is not. But while these arguments severely weaken the position of the interpretivist, at least the application of the underlying theory, they by no means carry the day for non-interpretivist positions. Indeed, every affirmative thrust ever offered to the living constitution argument is an abject intellectual failure. This approach has no compelling, logical, scientific, semantic, or even moral foundation. There is, in a word, nothing objective about it. No amount of emoting about the zeitgeist or penumbras from the emanations of the Bill of Rights can alter the fact that the usual non-interpretivist position, without any justification, states a claim for a special degree of authority for one branch of the federal government. It is an argument based peculiarly on the confidence its advocates seem to have in their own integrity. And incidentally, libertarians, when they aspire to the Supreme Court, are not totally free of this interpretivist problem. Well, you may have noticed uh, that what I have covered in my brief uh, uh, odyssey through prevailing theories of constitutional interpretation is very peculiar. There is substantial, indeed I would say, conclusive, conclusive force to the negative arguments made on each side of the debate. But there is little, if any, merit to the positive ones. Intent cannot be found or preserved, and a living constitution, in effect, is no constitution at all. I think, by and large, this is where we are on the matter today. I think we are just beginning to see the possibility of evolving an entirely new kind of paradigm for constitutional interpretation. I won't take the time to uh, suggest a primitive form of that, but I think uh, even in uh, Richard's presentation that was, of course, a masterful version of uh, interpretation under the prevailing paradigm, we began to see some of the possibilities of moving in uh, a different direction. I think this positive theory has got to come to grips with the problem of the fact that constitutional change is constantly going on with no amendment process, no conventions convene, no politics, no uh, bills passed in Congress or anything of the sort. The debate is very similar to the one economists have been looking at for recent years, and that is what explains the tremendous growth in government. Again, if I may uh, invoke the name of, another, again, the same living deity, uh, Milton Friedman has suggested that there may be a very strong basis in the growth of technology uh, as an explanation for the growth in government. It has not been noted, however, before this, that that very growth in government was a change in our constitutional system. And I don't believe that the existing approach to interpreting merely the words of the document, even in the historical context, is sufficient to cope with that problem. 